fine Catch you when you fall Be there when you call It's never too much I got you real talk I'm Tania Carr and you're listening to The Real Talk Podcast Here at Real Talk we create space for authenticity awareness and making a positive impact on the world around us Real talk, real people, real stories. Ngā mahi nui ki a koutou katoa nau mai hoki mai ki te kaupapa kōrero Real Talk. I'm Tania Carr and today in this episode you're going to hear the beautiful display of mana from the most selfless wahine, Sarah Brown. Now Sarah took the stage at our Real Talk Monga Rangatahi event in Tamaki Makaurau to share with us her fierce wisdom. She shares about the endless work that her and her husband Matt do to make positive change in our communities. Sarah has definitely utilised her experiences, her challenges and obstacles in life to create a pathway to help others on their journey through life too. One of the highlights for me and a highlight for a lot of us from Sarah's kōrero was when she invited Matt to the stage and they did a beautiful demonstration for us all on healthy communication. This was a first for many of us to witness and made an impact that continues to resonate. All I can say is it's truly an honour to be in the presence of Sarah and Matt of course too and I'm so grateful to them both and the sacrifices that they make and the work that they do. Now it's important to note that there are some triggering subjects in this corridor. so if you get triggered by this corridor, there are some support contact numbers listed in the show notes for you to utilise. Here is Sarah's story. Thank you so much for having us here today. I just want to give honour to Tanya for this kaupapa. Um, Matt and I are firm believers that any space where we encourage the kōrero and the stories of our people is a sacred and holy space. So kia ora to you, Tans, and your whole team for putting this together. I would like to share a little bit of my story because uh, I'm the other half of She Is Not Your Rehab and our relationship is really the heart of this kaupapa and how we've managed to heal together, managed to heal individually and then heal together. So the question of my life was this one, Kōwaiō, who am I? And I, and I had this question in, in my head the whole of my life. From the day I was born, my mother was actually a teen mother and she, got, she, was, she actually got pregnant to my father who was her second cousin. He was already married, so I was the product of an affair. And Back then in 1983, it was not the thing to do to have a baby to your cousin when he's already married to somebody else. So there was a lot of shame, a lot of mamai, a lot of sadness around my birth. Her parents actually were quite religious from up north, and they said to her, you can't keep your baby, you have to give baby away. And so she had no choice. She wasn't given the option, she wasn't given the option of who she was going to give her pepe to, but she gave birth to me in the hospital and she was told to leave straight away. So I was actually kept in the hospital, North Shore Hospital, uh, for 14 days. Of The first 14 days of my life I was in hospital and I was just looked after by the nurses there. And I always wonder what the conversations were like and who held me because for that first 14 days I didn't know the nurture of a mother. And so that was the start of my life. I was then taken to... Uh, 
you know, get given to a Pākehā family. So I knew I was not brought up with, nor did I know any part of my culture. I didn't know what iwi I was from. I, I had no concept of my parents. And I was taken down to the Manawatu, and I was raised there by very religious, very strict parents. And from that day, uh, there, there was a question and a longing in my heart to belong. And I felt such disconnection. I felt like... Looking around me, I shouldn't be here. I didn't connect with my parents that raised me. Uh, it was a very abusive home, physical violence, but also a lot of psychological abuse. And for a girl who I've later learned is my love language is actually words, words of affirmation, to receive detrimental words the whole of my life, it just really destroyed my soul. So from a very young age, I knew I was adopted. I knew I didn't belong there. I didn't look like them. I didn't act like them. I just felt this huge sense of, why am I here? And so my life was constantly filled with looking for validation and belonging in other people. And that sent me on a spiral of terrible relationships. I started sleeping around and was very promiscuous from the age of 13 years old. I looked for longing and worth in other people. So I'd look for boys. I'd think, oh, you know, if I connect to you, will you love me? My question was, who am I? Will you love me? And so my life really was abandonment, rejection, and loneliness. And that's what the words that would sum up my life. So as a young teenager, I decided I was going to leave home. At 12 years old, I decided I had enough. I want to go back. I want to find my real whanau. I want to connect with, you know, somewhere out there. Surely my mother will, will, you know, connect with me and I'll find who I am and I'll belong somewhere. And so I actually, I remember the week that I wanted to leave home. It had gotten quite bad. I saw this documentary on TV, and it was about uh, street kids, and they were leaving home as children and early teenagers, and they were living on the street. And I remember thinking, I don't know if I want to live like that, so maybe I'll just wait so I can get a job. And so I waited a couple more years, and the day I turned 15, I said to my adopted parents, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go find a job, and I'm going to go find my real family, and I'm leaving. And my adopted father looked at me, and he said, no one in this world is ever going to help you or want you. So if you leave, don't you ever come back. And that was my last words with him. And you know what I thought at the time? I don't even think I felt really that sad because it was just always, that's, that's how I felt my whole life anyway. He didn't really need to say it. But I actually felt quite excited. Like this was my chance to literally leave and go and find where I came from. So I left home. I moved uh, from the Manawatu. I managed to get a ride in a friend's car, and I drove up north to Auckland City, right here. And I remember driving over the Harbour Bridge. I had $10 in my pocket. I had no job at the time. And I yelled out the window, Auckland City, I'm here. And you know what? I just felt this excitement, like this is where I was going to find my belonging. And so um, actually, like, like Tanya, I actually got into retail as well and ended up as a retail manager, and I worked a lot of jobs. Because you see... Another response from the childhood I had was I didn't like to ask for help. I was a very staunch, independent person. I thought, you know what? My dad's words rung on my head. No one's ever going to want to help you. You have to do everything for yourself. So I truly believed that my survival was all up to me. I didn't believe there was a community out there. I didn't believe there was a whanau out there, really, because I'd never seen one. So I was a staunchly independent, fiercely independent person that would not even cry in front of people. So part of my healing, I guess, in later years has been learning to cry. 
By the age of 19, like the brother Jesse shared, he became a father. At the age of 19, I became a mama. And to be honest with you, Fana, I had no idea what I was doing. I had never looked after a child before. I didn't even really know how to take care of myself. And I had gotten pregnant to a guy I knew for a month. So when I had my pepe, I was in hospital by myself, and I looked down at her, and I thought, you know what? No one's ever felt about me the way I feel about you. And I promise you, I'm going to do everything I can to be the mother for you that I always wanted myself. I'm going to do everything I can to heal myself because you deserve a healed mother and a whanau. And you know what? That was the start of my healing journey. And it was not easy. There was many nights of tears, still a lot of disconnection, a rejection when I met some of my biological whānau that it, you know, it was a lot of mama and sadness about how I'd come into this world. So it had caused a lot of whānau friction. So my, I met my grandmothers and heard the full story from both sides and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, and part of me carried that. I've learned now as, a, as you know, someone doing the work, you know, that we have to learn what not to carry that's not ours to carry. Sometimes other people's sadness and mamai and their shame, you know what, it's not yours to carry. You just, you can put it down. You don't have to keep carrying it. And so I continued to do the healing work, but by the time my baby was seven months old, I was utterly down. I had no sleep for seven months. I was doing this early mama life by myself. And so one day I just decided I can't do this anymore. And so I took a bottle of sleeping pills, 42 tablets. My friend found me. I'd comb it out. She rang an ambulance, ended up getting taken to North Shore Psychiatric Hospital. Funnily enough, the hospital where I was born, but in the psych unit this time, waking up to a security guard at the door telling me I wasn't even allowed to go to the toilet because I was at risk to myself. And there was so much shame there for me because I thought, I did this when I have a baby that needs me. And so, again, that was another moment from my healing journey. What could I do different? I didn't know. I had been brought up very religious. I didn't really want to go back to that. So I thought, you know, what could I do to find a healing path? And my healing path, I started to, honestly, I read this book, Could You Can Heal Your Life? And it started with affirming myself. As someone who's a huge believer in the power of words, I started speaking those words of truth into myself. I am loved, I'm brave, I'm smart, I'm kind, I'm powerful, I can do these things. I can be whoever I want to be. And you know what? Like in the beginning saying it, it felt really like fake. Like I didn't even believe it. But the more I said it, the more I practiced it, it became part of my healing. Because you know what? Our self-talk, the way we speak to ourselves, this this is the life that we're creating with the words that we speak to ourselves with. And even now as a mother of three, I teach my children from young to affirm themselves every single night. My children will learn how to speak to themselves with kindness, things that I was never taught as a, as a young kōtero. So that was part of my journey. And through all my healing, I decided that I would no longer look to somebody else to validate me. I would no longer go seek a bad relationship with just anyone because I was so desperate to belong and so desperate to have someone else tell me that I was worthy. I decided, you know what, I am going to deem myself to be worthy. I am going to heal myself. I'm going to do the work, and I am going to be with. I'm going to be with myself. I am the. I have to focus on the relationship that's going to be the longest one in my life, the one I have with myself. So the quote that we shared before, you know, um, love yourself so that when love comes, it won't be a stranger. I had never experienced love of myself, 
And so when Matt Brown finally arrived, you know, a few years later, the love that we shared, it was familiar to me because I already knew how to treat myself well. I decided, I, I actually wrote down a list of all the things I wanted in somebody. And by then I'd been single for seven years because I had gone to uni, I'd had a career, I was raising my baby. And I wrote down a list of all the things. And I thought, he has to be kind to me and my daughter. He has to have integrity, he has to be a man of his word. Someone um, that's actions match their words. You know, somebody who's got work ethic, somebody with motivation for life. All the things I listed. And you know what, I thought, you know, I'm going to treat myself like that, like what I want, I'm going to be that myself. Because you only attract what you are, and that's what I learned. And so by the time he came along, we were friends for four years, and we did this work together because I had met him, and I'd heard his story um, in my job at the time. And I thought to myself, when I first heard his story, like what you've heard tonight, it was quite raw, I thought, we need more people to share their stories like this. This is not even just his story. This is a lot of people's stories. And so I kind of vowed at the time I would help his story get out there. And I think I've done a pretty good job, to be honest. I've kept my word. So we just became friends. And over the course of friendship, I learned that he was all the things on my list. He was kind. He was trustworthy. He was honest. He was a man of integrity. And I thought, oh, yeah. But I thought in my head, no, we were just friends. We're just friends. And then eventually when he asked me out, I remember thinking, you're everything I've wanted, but actually I'm ready for this now because I've done the healing work myself. And so really our work now, she is not your rehab. We, we've done social media campaigns. We did this one with my little son over there, Angelo. We sent out a, a Dear Mr. Rock letter um, for One White Ribbon Day, and it kind of went viral. It had 25 million views because the rock reshared it. And he wrote back to us. And so that got us a huge amount of international following. But through that campaign, we got letters from all over the world. People saying, your story is our story. Your community sounds like our community. Indigenous communities everywhere talking of the same things that we were talking about. And so I kind of learned then there's people all over the world that need this kind of healing. And from there, we decided to write a book. And our goal for the book really wasn't to even sell heaps of copies. Our goal for the book was actually to get it into places of incarceration, places of darkness, where our people could access tools and solutions to heal. And so I remember asking my publisher, how much will it cost me to get a, every, a copy to every single person in this country who's incarcerated? And they were like, how many are incarcerated? I was like, 9,350 at the time. 51% of those are Indigenous people. And they were like, um... Uh, yeah, we don't really want to just give away books. We kind of want to sell them. I was like, nah, we want to give them away. So they said to me, okay, it'll cost you $100,000. And I said, sweet, thank you. I think she just thought, she's not going to come up with that. You know, when I went off and I asked every single person that we'd worked with, do you guys want to donate to our books? And the day I got the hundred grand, the final amount, I could not wait to text back my publisher. Hey, I got the hundred grand, send me the books. And they were like, wow, okay, no one's ever really done that. And in fact, we're right up there with the amount of books in prison now, the same as the Bible and the Quran. so kia ora. Uh, <laughs> but from those books going to prisons everywhere, we've had the honour and the privilege to read stories from the men incarcerated inside and women too. But letters of people that have said, I've never read a book in my life, but I read yours five times. You know, your book has taught me how to heal. I never understood the trauma I experienced was connected to the way I would abuse my family. I too want to be a change 
and my whānau. I too want to heal my family line. I too want better for my children. We've received uh, voice notes from our tāne the, the day they leave prison on our Instagram and Facebook. Killed a brother. Uh, I just got out of Mount Eden prison today. I just want to tell you your book changed my life because I've never really understood trauma. I didn't understand why I did the things I have done. And I just want to thank you. And I'm coming down to get a haircut when I can afford to get to Christchurch. Those are the sorts of messages we get. We get messages from partners, from children, thanking us for this mahi. And all it was was just a book that was pretty much a $10 investment into our people. Do you know what? One story I want to share the books got delivered at the end of last year, just before Christmas, and in one prison, Christchurch Men's, which we do a lot of mahi in, um, the books arrived, and uh, some of the brothers went up, and they were all just handed out books. One of them said to the, the staff, oh, I really want to read this book. And they go, oh, you can have one. Everyone gets one. He said, oh, but I can't read. And then another, another brother in prison said to him, brother, I'll read it to you. And you know what? Those boys, they started their own prison book club. Not the staff, not corrections. Those men, they started their own book club. Do you know what they called it? Illiterati. Illiterati. <laughs> that was a book club. And you know what? When I heard that and how they set up and they would read it to each other, don't you ever tell me our men are irredeemable. Don't you ever tell me that there's no rehabilitation possible for them. This is in the Violent Offenders Unit. These, are, these, are the, can, these tāne are considered the worst in our country, and yet here they are reading stories of trauma and hope and healing to each other. Don't tell me they're irredeemable. They are not irredeemable. No person, as long as they have breath in their lungs, is irredeemable, and that centres our work. So most of our work, all the work we do, we're, we've developed an app is really centred on making tools and solutions accessible for our people for free. Because, like Matt mentioned earlier, not a lot of our people can afford therapy. A lot of, there's not even the wait, there's often the wait list, but there's the cost. It's just a lot of things, the stigma, everything. So we've developed a men's mental health app, which gets launched this Saturday next year. We did this in collaboration with the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Social Development. It is targeted for our Indigenous men, so look out for it, but all men are welcome. And it's just another way to make the healing tools that we've used in life with all the groups that we've run accessible for those that can't get to our groups. Every single part of our work centres on changing the narrative. I want to tell you here today that it is possible to be everything you never received. It's possible to be the kind of mother, the kind of father that you didn't have yourself. It's possible to rewrite your family history. It's possible to be a good ancestor for your children. You know what, like, when I think of Matt and I's life, we shouldn't even really last together, you know, really. We come from the most traumatic homes, put them together, and we're expected to kind of make it work. We've had to learn tools. We've had to heal together. We've, I've had to let Matt in. Um, for a staunch, independent uh, wahine like me, I, for a long part of my healing journey, I would actually sit outside of my car and cry by myself because I didn't want my baby to hear me upset. And so I would do that you know, whenever I would, you know, feel triggered or want to, you know, do the work. And when I got married, something that happened, I remember something happened with my whānau and it, it triggered me and I felt really upset. And so I actually did the same thing. I went off and sat in my car outside. And so when I did that, about five minutes after, my husband comes into the garage and he opens that car door. And you know what he said to me? You don't cry in here by yourself anymore. That's the healing work that we do together. You know what? It's sharing tears. It's letting walls down. And so I invite my husband to come up right now because often in spaces, um, we feel that the best way to teach is by modeling behavior.
And so we want to just share a little 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 taster of some of the mahi we do. And we do this in prisons everywhere even. We do like relationship group therapy. We talk about stuff. And when we share this, what we do here, we, we, we ask all the men in our groups, hey, what's intimacy? And, you know, they always joke around, oh, sex, you know, like this. And I'm like, okay, well, you know what? Intimacy is when you can show the other person you're with yourself, your real self, the shameful things that you don't want to show anybody. And so intimacy is created through open conversation. It's created, it's created with connection. And so Matt and I actually, like, funnily enough, we do this for fun with each other. We do it in groups. We actually do it in our real life because our co-papa centers on our relationship. And so we keep strong by having open, honest, caught it all. So we're going to do a little bit here for you now. This is a, he doesn't even know what's on the questions, but these are some of the questions that we usually, anyone just chucks us or asks us. So we start the time of intimacy with each other by looking in each other's eyes. And for some of our whanau that we teach, they've never really done that because it's quite an intimidating thing to look into the eyes of somebody. And you just acknowledge each other. And you ask a question. You start. Do you find it easy or hard to admit when you are wrong? I find it hard to admit I'm wrong because when I was growing up, um, my adopted mother would often force me to take responsibility for things I didn't do. And so whenever something comes up, I instantly feel really defensive and I don't want to admit it. And so that's why I hate admitting I'm wrong. And being wrong always equated in punishment for me. What can I do better that helps you feel seen? I admire that you are the most giving and forgiving person I've ever met. I admire that you will give at the cost of yourself, and I admire that you will bravely champion forgiveness when it costs you, and I see that cost. What do you most want our children to see watching us? Mm-hmm. 
and not feel like violence and not feel like abuse. It's something I don't know actually be in the very Just a little bit of intimacy exercises we do in prison. Um, and I, I guess we do this because many people have never seen it modelled. We didn't grow up in homes where this kind of relationship was modelled. We never saw honest courted or modelled. We didn't understand what um, it was like to have a conversation that was hard. And you know what? In the hard conversations are where the healing happens because most of our hurt will come from relationships, but so too will our healing. And so my encouragement today, Fano, is to have hard conversations have hard conversations with those you love. Have hard conversations with those you find difficult. When you can look at the eyes of another and ask a question from your heart, that's where the healing happens. That's where the magic happens. That's how we break cycles. That's where we heal. And so it is possible to change the narrative. It's possible to break the cycle. Modi Orafano, thank you for having us. Real Talk will be coming to a town near you, so check out the Real Talk website, www.realtalknz.co.nz, or follow us on our Instagram at real underscore talk underscore nz to find out where we'll be next. I got you, Real Talk.